Leviticus chapter 19, that's page 95 in your pew Bibles. Let us open in prayer. Father, now as we come to your word, we've sung, we've been saved to sin no more. As we contemplate and consider what many of us have heard from the times we can remember, may it not be old news. May it be sweet and dear. May it grow in us. May we be reminded. May we be refreshed in the goodness of what we, we find the salvation that we have through our Lord Jesus Christ. Take us deeper and fuller into his work and into your plan for our salvation that we would come out the other side more in wonder, more in love with you, more devoted to you, ready to serve you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, how do you approach God? How do you draw near to God? It's the question we've been asking in Leviticus. Probably not a question your average in a uh, person on the street, non-church, unchurched would ask, maybe a, uh, on the street level would say, well, how do you have a relationship with God? How do you get to heaven? How can you become, you know, to put it in non-Christian terms, how can you be a truly good person? Or how can you meet the divine? Well, there's different thoughts today. Some would say, well, it's simply not necessary. See, atheists would say there is no God. Um, perhaps if you had a, a deist or someone who believes in a God out there, or maybe someone like a, a Jordan Peterson who likes the idea of God but really doesn't want to meet him, you'd say, well, it's completely up to you. Embrace the suffering that's out there. Clean up your room. Make your bed. Right? Go reach God. Maybe even theism or parts of Christianity. Well, you have to do your part. Buddhism, if you can call it theistic, would say there's the Eightfold Path. Islam says there's the, there's the Five Pillars. Some parts of Christianity would even say, exercise your free will so that you can believe in Jesus. But what does Scripture say? How do you approach God? How do you draw near? Well, it says there's nothing you can do on your own. God must act first, and he has. So the idea today is a sermon as we approach this well-known passage is that your only hope to come home is through sacrifice. Your only hope to come home is through sacrifice. And what you see in the the Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16, is is the mountaintop of Leviticus. Now, you you might remember, I I won't hold you to this, but in in January or February, when we had the introductory sermon, I I said Leviticus is a little bit like those those rolling hills in the Blue Ridge uh, of the Lehigh Valley where I grew up, which was called the the graveyard of hiking boot graveyard of the Appalachian Trail, that, that steep slopes with the, the flinty shale that would shred boots and there was just lots of hiking boots ruined on the, the Appalachian Trail in the Blue Ridge Mountains. And I said Leviticus is a little bit like that. It's the graveyard of the Bible reading plans. And we've been slogging for the fast, last couple months through first sacrifices and then rules and ordination and then five chapters of cleanliness laws. One of the rewards of a challenging climb is the incredible view at the top. This really is the mountaintop. You had the experience where you, where you climb up and you reach that summit where all you see below is that stunning panorama. And here you come to the heart of the matter. Right? Leviticus 16 is the heart of the first five, five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. You should remember that the Pentateuch is, is formed to, to focus the attention on Leviticus. It's, it's a chiasm. It's an X that, that draws your center, attention to the center. You have, you have Genesis and Deuteronomy. You have Exodus and Numbers. And in the middle, 
you can make the argument, I did in the past sermons, that, that the center is Leviticus. And, and then within Leviticus, close to the center of the book, and certainly thematically the hinge, is this chapter, chapter 16, the Day of Atonement, where all the sacrifices come to a head. And, and then you can make the argument thematically that the center of this chapter... There's a few little verses, which I'm going to read first, and then we'll go back through. Starting in chapter 16, verse 16, after the, 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 the goat has been killed, it says this about what Aaron shall do. Thus, he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so shall he do for the tent of meeting, which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanliness. No one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and has made atonement for himself and for his house and for all the assembly of Israel. Then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it, and he shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the goat, blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around. And he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times and cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleanness of the people of Israel. Leviticus here answers the question that's been raised ever since Eden, when Adam and Eve are thrown out, how can I once more live again in the presence of God? And this is not just a longing from, with Adam and Eve from Eden, it's, it's every single person who lives east of Eden, away from their creator. You think about all the pain and the lostness and the loneliness and the hopelessness and apathy of today. It's, it's the same question, whether they're asking the right question or not. How do I approach God? Leviticus 16 gives this answer at the very center of the very Pentateuch. Um, it says your only hope is to come home for sacrifice. And, and the hard work of understanding and applying the previous passages up to this point and at this day of atonement. And so what we're going to do is walk through this passage, verses, several verses at a time, some explanation and application, and apply our theme at the end. Well, as we, you approach this, you see that the Lord is holy and is still an ever-present danger. Let's read the first two verses. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the sons of Aaron, when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark, so that he may not die, for I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. And one of the things here you'll hear is a reference to time, right? After, when, whenever you're studying your Bible and you hear reference to time, pay, pay attention, especially in Leviticus, where a lot of it just seems to be timeless. But this is going back to a specific time, to chapter 10. You remember, may remember where Nadab and Abihu, they have just been consecrated and they're, they're this new priest of this beautiful new creation, this new reality, that the, the mediators between God and his people. And, and they enter into the tabernacle and they authorize some sort of unauthorized fire and they're struck dead. They're, they're burnt to a crisp. Argued earlier that most likely the explanation is they tried to enter the most holy place itself. It, it certainly looks back. This looks back to that time and it's tied the Day of Atonement. There's, there's uses of censers in both, both passages. It talks about drawing near in both passages. And, and their deaths are the reason the Lord gives us instruction for the D Day of Atonement, but it's, it's not the only reason. This was built into the tabernacle. Turn with me to Exodus 25. We're looking at Exodus 25, verses 17 through 22. This is the construction of the tabernacle. And this is what the Lord says about... The mercy seat. 25, verse 17 to 
two, it's on page 65. He says, you shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold. Of hammered work you shall make them. On the two ends of the mercy seat, make one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat, so you make the cherubim of its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings. Their faces, one to another, towards the mercy seat, shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give to you. There I will meet you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about that that I will give in commandment for the people of Israel. So Moses has already, God's already given Moses this idea of the mercy seat. It's not like it came about with Nadab and Abihu. That's just what what prompts the occasion. Uh, Mercy seat may better literally translate it atonement lid, or maybe we would say place of atonement. The Hebrew word there is the same root as atonement. The, the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, uses the word hilasterion, which, if you first John, would be propitiation or maybe expiation, both, both the removal and the divine satisfaction of, of God's justice. So it's the place of atonement. That's what the mercy seat is. Kids, let me just ask you, what does atonement mean? We're going to use that word a lot tonight, so I want to make sure you know what atonement means. It means at one mint, right? You are at one with someone that, in other words, something is wrong and you are brought back into a right relationship with that person. And when we talk about atonement with God, if you remember from, from multiple sermons back, say there's four ways that atonement brings you right with God. Four Ps. One of the main ones is that you are purified, you are made clean from your sins and acceptable to come to God. That there is a price that has to be paid if I were to take a car and drive it into your house inadvertently, you could forgive me, but there's still a gaping hole in your house. Somebody has to pay for the damage. If I were to speed and violate traffic laws while crashing into your house, even if no one was damaged, I have broken a law and I would lose my license or go to jail, even if no other harm was done, because there is a penalty to be paid. So th- and then there's this P of propitiation or pleasing God, where God is rightfully angry with us and made to be at love with us and to accept us as children because of this atonement. That's what atonement means. There's, there's four aspects. You've seen them in various ways as we've gone through the sacrifices. Kids, before we go any farther, adults too, I'll ask you, is Jesus your atonement? Have you accepted him? Think about that as we're going through this atonement. We look at the place of atonement or the mercy seat. And already in Exodus, you see there is built into the tabernacle an understanding that God's holiness demands a satisfaction, demands an atonement if his people are going to meet with him. And it's not just for the, the blatant defilement of two, perhaps well-meaning priests, but all the sins of the people. It's very clear. And so the Lord's holiness is an ever-present danger for his people. His, his presence makes it clear that the temple is now the mountain where he dwells. Right? I said your only hope is to come home is through sacrifice. Well, where's home? The Bible's clear. Home, home is where the Lord is. And whether it's Eden or then Sinai or the tabernacle, the Lord dwells in that radiant glory. And, and you remember when, when 
the Lord came to Sinai with all the, the, uh, the manifestations of the thunder and the lightning and the trumpets and the loud voices and the people shook and they said to Moses, we'll stay here, you go there, we don't want to die. Well, that's still the case here. But the problem is that Israel, like you and me, when you have access to God on, on a regular basis, can forget his holiness, can downplay his holiness. Uh, Gordon Wenham, commenting on this passage, commenting says, familiarity can breed contempt. And these laws of, of the Day of Atonement drive home the truth that God is just as holy and demands just as much reverence in the tent of meeting as on that first occasion when he appeared in Sinai. And this once again raises the question, how can the tabernacle truly become the tent of meeting? How can the Lord's dwelling place, that's what the tabernacle means, dwelling place, also be the tent of meeting where the Lord lives with his people? Well, you see how the Lord provides a way. We'll read verses 3 through 10. And this is a summary of what's to come, but we'll read and explain a little bit. But in this way, verse 3, Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat and shall have the linen armor, uh, undergarment on his body. And he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and then put them on. And he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. Now we'll explain some more of this later on. What I want you to see here is the elaborate preparation the high priest makes. First of all, he, he bathes in a holy place, and, and then he changes his clothing, he changes his outfit. You notice that? Normally he has the beautiful garments, the, the turban, the crown, the, with, with the, the plate, the holy to the Lord, the, the outer garment, that sky blue and purple and the ephod and the breastplate with the gems. This is different. These garments are holy, but they're simple. They're, they're even less ornate than a regular priest. Wenham, again, I think helpfully puts it this way. On this day, the high priest enters the other world into the very presence of God. He must therefore dress as befits the occasion. Among his fellow men, he is dignity as the great meteor between man and God is unsurpassed, and his splendid clothes draw attention to the glory of his office. But in the presence of God, even the high priest is stripped of all honor. He becomes simply the servant of the king of kings, whose dress status is portrayed, his true status is portrayed in the simplicity of his dress. So normally he's, he's representing the, the regality of, of the office and, and even how he reflects God's glory. He's an Adam figure, but in the presence of God, he's, he's muted and appropriately subdued. And his clothes are, are not demeaning. The angels wore clothes of ordinary linen as well and, and were radiant. The saints will be described in Revelation as wearing clothes like white linen. But 
just like we will throw our crowns down at the feet of Jesus at the end of time. Here the high priest takes off his glorious robes and comes humbly into the Lord's presence. And he offers two sets of sacrifices, which we'll look at in more detail. First, the ones for himself, verses 11 through 14. Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself, and he shall take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord, and the two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small, and he shall bring it inside the veil, and put the incense on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony, so that he does not die. And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat on the east side. And in front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Now here he takes a bull. Notice if you were to remember way back to chapter four and the sin offerings, there's a lot of things that are similar to when uh, if, a, if the high priest sinned, he was to bring a bull at any time for a sin offering. So there's much of it follows along with the rules for chapter four, but two things are different. The first is that he takes and makes smoke. He takes a censer. Kids, you know what a censer is? It's kind of like a little basket that's hanging by a chain and, and you can swing it in front of you and, and, and you take some coals and then incense. And so there's going to be smoke and, and smells. And um, if you go to a Greek Orthodox church, I believe they still use incense today as part of, of their worship. And so he takes that and before the altar of burnt offering, mix it with that incense and then holds it before him as he goes into the most holy place. Why is that? So that he does not die. That's what it says. Other places in scripture, incense seems to represent the prayers of God's people going up. Not likely here. More like it's, it's the glory cloud. It's the cloud which protects the people from the Lord's presence and his glory. And so he enters the, the holy place. Is the second thing. Normally he would sprinkle the blood outside of the most holy place. Now he enters it with the incense as a shield. And he goes to right before the, the mercy seat, the place of atonement. He sprinkles the blood on the mercy seat and says for him and his house. Now here it's not necessarily talking about his wife and his family. And I think most likely what it's talking about is the rest of the priests, the sons, his sons, which his descendants. Aaron is making atonement for himself and for the priesthood who offers the sacrifices for God's people. Notice the direction. He, off, off, he, he approaches from the east of the altar. There's a reason why they put that one little word in there. De- the details are significant. Remember the, the, the progression, the direction of homesickness. Eastward is away from God. Adam and Eden went out of the garden to Eden to Cain being expelled east of Eden, moving further and further away eastward from the Lord. When the Lord and his glory departs from the temple in Ezekiel, it moves away from the east. When it comes at the end and inhabits the new temple, it comes in from the west. And so when Aaron is making atonement on the east side, he is once again opening up the way to meet the Lord. And having made atonement for himself and the priesthood, the high priest can now make atonement for the people. Read verses 15 through 22. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus, he shall make atonement for the holy place. 
because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting, which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanness. No one may enter into the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and has made atonement for himself and for his house and for all the assembly of Israel. Then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it and shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around. And he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his fingers seven times and cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleannesses of the people of Israel. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. And the goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. So once again, it doesn't say this, but it's implied. He takes the censer and uses that as a shield or a cloud as he goes in, and he once again sprinkles the blood on the mercy seat. And then he commences to continue to a wider cleansing, the holy place, and, and all the tent of meeting, and especially focuses on the altar, which is almost certainly the burnt offer, burnt offering on the outside in the courtyard. Verse 18, it talks about how there's both cleansing and consecration. Right? He sprinkles the altar, notice both with the blood for himself and, and the priesthood and for the people. That's the cleansing. And then he consecrates the, the, the altar. He, he, he dabs the, the horns with the blood. Now, at this point, it's important to ask why. Why does an altar, an object, need atonement? Why is it? Because, well, because it's, 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 it's that altar in which the sins for Israel have been offered. Right? It's, it's connected to, it's contaminated by, by the people of God who come in contact with it. Notice that it talks here about both the ceremonial impurities, all of that that we had talked about from chapter 11 to 15, and all the transgressions, the breaking of God's law, the, the moral sins. Right? There's a reason why those purity laws come right before them. They are, they are illustrations of God's need for, for cleanliness. The fact that just, just as what we eat, what our skin is, what we wear, where we live, our, our sexuality, these are all areas that, that illustrate how we need to be clean, but that the problem is much deeper than the skin-deep uncleanness and purity laws. Ultimately, the people need atonement for their sin. You see the drama here. No one else can enter. Everyone is on the outside of this tent. Only the high priest, the sole mediator, may enter. And he goes about the business of offering atonement for himself and then the people, which would take quite a bit of time as the people are waiting outside. Then you could ask, well, why is there a second goat? This is the question that came to my mind. This is where both goats are told, are said, are part of the sin offering. It says early in the chapter, you take two goats for the sin offering. But... If there's a goat already given for the sin offering, why, why is the second one there? If the first one is taking care of the transgressions, how, how can the second one bear the sins out? And, and, and what does Azazel mean? As I read in verse 8 and 10. Let's try to answer those two questions together. As far as the meaning of that, that word, there's, there's a couple educated guesses or options of what that Hebrew word is. It's, it's unknown. Um, the one is uh, Azazel could mean goat demons. 
And there is the Hebrew word as, you can hear Azazel, as, right? And so there's this idea of, of this is a name of a goat demon. This was something that people offered uh, sacrifices to, worshipped. And so many commentators, especially those that have a progressive view, uh, maybe a critical commentary, see the scripture as just human literature, would say, well, this is, this is one of those holdovers where, where Israel is worshipping something else. Or someone who has a higher view of scripture would say, well, it's not worship. But that's what society did, and so God allowed that. I think that's unlikely, because if you turn over to chapter 7, verse 7, 17, verse 7, it's explicitly commanded, so they shall no more sacrifice their sacrifices to goat demons, after whom they whore. This shall be a statute forever for them throughout their generation. I don't think that's a very good option. Um, the other three are uh, perhaps related um, as Azazel could mean what we kind of have today, scapegoat. There's a goat on which we put the sins and it's pushed off. Um, it could mean a rocky or craggy place. It's, it's a cliff where the goat is put on the other side and you can't get back. He's cut off. Right? It talks about how it's, the goat is, is taken outside the camp and, and let free in the wilderness in a remote area. Um, Similar could be complete destruction, the place where he's cut off from the camp. I think it's one of those things. This is a goat that's removed. What we do know, what is very clear, is that this is a visible sign. The people know that God, the priest, is atoning for them in, in, the, in the tent of meeting, but they can't see it. But now the priest comes out, and he places his hands, and he confesses the sin on that goat, and is led away out of the camp. All of their sins, all their impurities, and perhaps in the Pentateuch it says some sins are even if you if you ask for forgiveness, there's no sacrifice that can can be forgiven. It's a little unclear. Perhaps even those sins, if repented them, and so it is showing people just like the psalmist says in 103: "For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love towards those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far." Does he remove our transgressions from us? As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. And here you see in a very vivid way God placing the sins of his people on another and leading it outside the camp. Some Jewish traditions even had them, that they would take the goat to a cliff and push it over in a way. It's not here in the text, but the idea of being removed from the presence and the holy place of the Lord. And so the Lord gives them sacrifice so that they can be devoted to him. Let's read verses 23 through 28. Then Aaron shall come into the tent of meeting and shall take off the linen garments that he put on when he went into the holy place and shall leave them there. And he shall bathe his body in water in a holy place and put on his garments and come out and offer his burnt offering and the burnt offering of the people and make atonement for himself and for the people. And the fat of the sin offering he shall burn on the altar. And he who lets the goat go to Azazel shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water. And afterwards he may come into the camp. And the bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place, shall be carried outside the camp. Their skin and their flesh and their dung shall be burned up with fire. And he who burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water. And afterwards... He may come in to the camp. 
Now notice here, the change of clothing, Aaron cleans and changes his, his robes now that he's resuming his priestly duties again normally. And so he has his glorious robes and now he burns the offerings of the Lord. And here it's that, that phrase, turn to smoke, right? where, where that sacrifice is, 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 is turned to smoke in a way that it, it symbolizes the people and is lifted up into God's presence, showing that they enjoy fellowship with God. And this shows us that this is not just the goal of mere toleration, but enjoyment Although the focus here is on atonement and being made right with God and the vast majority of the sacrifices for cleansing and removal of sin, the goal is fellowship with God. Right? Once again, Israel is brought back into a right state with God, symbolizing by them ascending into his presence. Now other people clean um, the, the, and they remove the skins and, and burn them. Notice that in doing this, there is now a response that God demands from his people. There's nothing that they can do to make atonement. But they must act in ways to keep his purity laws, including the bathing and the proper disposing of the holy sacrifices. This this is an insight into how following God, whether it's in the Old Testament or life in Christ in the New Testament. You can do nothing to deliver yourself from your sins and to bring yourself home. God must act and he does. But then once he does, he calls you to a life of response that he has done. It's the theme of this book. You are delivered and devoted or you are delivered so that you can be devoted to God. Or kids, I'll put it this way. God has given you the incredible gift of Jesus so you can give your life back to him. And so for the Old Testament people, this this devotion was expressed yearly in keeping the Day of Atonement, verses 29 to 34. And it shall be a statute to you forever that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves and shall do no work, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. On this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you, you shall be clean before the Lord for all your sins. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest to you, and you shall afflict yourselves. It is a statute forever. And the priest who is anointed and consecrated as priest in his father's place shall make atonement, wearing the holy linen garments. He shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary. He shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar. And he shall make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. And this shall be a statute forever for you that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of all their sins. And Aaron did as the Lord commanded Moses. God gives this as a perpetual observance for as long as the Mosaic Covenant is in place. Most likely the people of Israel thought this meant forever. The author of Hebrews makes it very clear. The Gospels make it clear with the tearing of the temple curtain at Jesus' death that this has been fulfilled. But still for God's people, this is a day of solemn rest. It is literally a Sabbath of Sabbaths. You see how important the Sabbath is to the Lord in the, in, in the Pentateuch? Well, this is a Sabbath of Sabbaths. It is a time of resting and fasting. In fact, it is the only day actually commanded in the Old Testament where God's people were to fast. Once again, it shows there's a place for human response to God's work. If God has not changed your heart in the atonement, that means he hasn't worked. But one more time as it concludes, in case you forgot, it ends with a reminder of what God has done through his priest. His anointed priest shall make atonement for the sanctuary, for the priests, for all the people, and you shall be cleansed from your sins. We said that the point tonight is that your only hope to come home is through sacrifice. Do you need a life offered in your place. And you say, Pastor Andrew, you've said that before. In fact, if you were to take meticulous notes and you go back several months, you'd say, you have a sermon point that was very similar to this. That's right. 
There are many themes in Leviticus, but this is the main one, and it's certainly not new. In fact, it climaxes here. Right after this, the, the idea goes from becoming holy, what God does for you, to being holy, how by your God's grace you work that out. But here, the sacrifices come to a point. They all move you to this climax where the high priest gets the closest to God, perhaps since Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Perhaps you could argue Moses on Mount Sinai is just as close. But here he comes right to the very face of God with just the smoke separating him. And that's the goal, to come near to God. But it's also for a specific purpose, to atone for the uncleanness and transgression of all the people. And I want you to stop and think about what it means that a day of atonement was needed after the first 15 chapters of Leviticus. Think about all of the sacrifices and the detail and the precautionary ritual cleansing of the last 15 chapters. And it's not enough. God's people, who were a kingdom of holy priests to live for him, still must have another cleansing. And then the high priest himself, the most holy and set-apart person in the community, who could not even mourn the death of his parents for fear of contamination, he himself is impure and must undergo elaborate ceremonies of atonement before he is even fit to offer sacrifices for the people. Leviticus hammers home again and again and again that you must receive atonement and your only hope is that sacrifice. And why is that repetition? Because our sinful nature fights against that idea tooth and nail. That you are helpless. That you need the death of another to save you. That you bring nothing on your own to salvation. That's very un-American, if we can say un-American today. That's very anti-enlightenment. We've been studying in Sunday school. There's a reason why those Enlightenment philosophers hated Christianity. They said it was for losers. It was for weaklings. It makes for terrible society because it lays bare the fact that you are helpless before God. Here's two ways that your sinful nature can fight, can, can oppose this very clear, simple, yet offensive idea. You can deny the atonement. It's not necessary. You can downplay, downplay the atonement. It's not that significant. It's very common today to deny the necessity of the atonement. And when I think of the atonement here, I'm thinking very specifically of the substitutionary aspect of atonement. There's very various parts of atonement, but that someone or something had to die in your place so that you were made right with God. You know, in the, the choose your own adventure story of today where, where we want to write our reality, people think that God has done a really bad job of writing his story. The cross is repulsive to many people, including so-called progressive Christianity. They will downplay or even deride what they would call PSA, right? Penal substitutionary atonement. That, that Christ had to die in your place and receive God's wrath. They would say, why this blood and death? This is primitive. This is barbaric. This is nothing but cosmic child abuse. Now, but in fact, but in fact, somebody must die for you. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the Harry Potter stories, but there's a family in the Harry Potter stories that are secretly with Voldemort. He's the bad guy. And, and they, they dabble, and they're, they're part of this alliance. And the, the little boy who's in Hogwarts wants to be like his dad. He wants to be a bad guy. And he actually succeeds in some ways, and, and the headmaster dies for him kind of to protect him. But at the end of the day, once Voldemort is de- defeated, there's no justice. The Malfoys are just brought back in. Maybe they're a little aloof, maybe a little out of society. Nothing's required. On the other hand, think about the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where you have Edmund, one of the, the, the four siblings who go into Narnia, and he's bewitched 
by the white witch. He's, he's eaten her drink. He's, he sat with her. And he betrays his siblings. And, and he is rescued. And, and the witch comes and demands satisfaction for his blood. Now you can argue whether C.S. Lewis is going with ransom theory of that. Or maybe it's the emperor and the sun and the deep magic. He's not writing a theology here. He's, he's writing an illustration in his allegory. But the point is, is that Edmund cannot simply just be let go. A price must be paid. Um, that's a lot closer. I'm not picking on J.K. Rowling. She wasn't trying to write um, an allegory. But a lot of people wish that our sin was a lot more like Draco Malfoy, where it's just the bad guy is defeated, we're protected, and now we can come back into the community. But in fact, someone must die for you. And not just as an example or someone to protect you, but to rescue you from the death that you deserve. Blood is necessary. If you get nothing else from Leviticus, the life is in the blood. A life must be given for you. A life that is pure and blameless. And this brings you face to face with the reality of God's awesome glory and his holiness. He is your creator. One day you will meet him and you will either be judged and cast away or somebody must die for you. Right? The, the most concerning part of the efforts of so-called progressive Christians to downplay or undermine this aspect of Jesus' atonement is that it shrinks God's holiness. And it fundamentally changes the way you look at your salvation. If Jesus' death is, is simply as a protector or an example or a way to give yourself a little grace so that you can pull yourself up and save yourself, well, then you owe him something. But if he died, then you are helpless. Then you owe him everything. And that's the basis for sanctification, which will be the second part of this book. And that is the picture of Leviticus. And when you see that you can't deny the atonement, this helps you then see how important it is. It helps you to fight against downplaying the significance as well. But it's human nature to take for granted what is yours. It is human nature to rob God's glory and say, well, we did part of it. And how can you downplay the atonement when you believe it? Well, you can forget it. You can cease to remind yourself. Your heart can be hard. Does that someone ever talk about what God's doing in their life and you just, you just feel like you're tone deaf? You just, you just really don't care. What, why is that? How, how, what's going on there? Well, something else has grabbed your heart. Or perhaps you are spending more time listening to the voices that are telling you that you're such an amazing person out there. Maybe people who, who are influencing you are people who preach a gospel of self-reliance. Well, how do we fight this? Well, you get on your knees and pray. We need to be in the business of reminding ourselves and others, beginning every morning, the Son of God came in to be my sacrifice. Remind ourselves daily. That's why we have the gospel preached. That's why we, we are in worship. That's why we need to meet and talk and about the Lord and, and give our testimonies, not just of our conversion, but how the Lord is meeting us right now and is transforming our sinful hearts. And this all comes as you apply Scripture to your heart, public, community, of believers, and privates. And it's the deep structures of Scripture that should shape you. And this is what you see here. Leviticus places you on the outside of Scripture, or outside of, of salvation. You're, you're the people. You are unable to cleanse yourself. You can't do it. In April, I, I went to get my, my PD catheter placed in order to do that so I can do dialysis. As I'm sitting there in the prep room and I'm cleaning myself down, and there's, there's some preparation that I'm doing, but I just realized there is, there is no way, there is nothing I can do to place this tube inside of me. There is no way that I can sedate myself 
cut myself open, inflate myself, insert it properly, sanitize, suture, reanimate myself. I am helpless and completely unable to put this tube inside of me. That's your salvation and more. Now I've jumped straight to Christ, but Hebrews 9 tells us how Jesus is the ultimate priest who enters the holy place and the atonement lid not laid for, made for hands and places his blood there for your atonement. Right? This is the heart of Leviticus. And it pounds home. And while we're still waiting for Jesus, God is your only hope. This blood of sacrifice. This is what helps us then when we come to Matthew 121. Makes so much sense. Makes it deeper when you hear those words. He will call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. When you accept Jesus, then you can come home. The curtain is torn. The way is open. You can come home. Please pray with me. Father, we pray that we would not lose sight of the very simple truths of what Jesus has done as priest giving himself for us. I pray that everyone here, everyone who is listening today, perhaps live streaming, knows this Lord. And Father, would we not take for granted? Would our hearts be awakened and revived? Would we go with joy knowing that Jesus is our satisfaction? Would you be given glory? We pray this in his name. Amen.